everyone! You're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Dokapel. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we will be discussing Pixar's 2003 animated film, Finding Nemo. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Okay, so for our second episode, we're talking about Finding Nemo, which yeah. is a hard pivot away from... Hades Town, very different genre, very different sort of media. I know that you're a huge fan of Finding Nemo. Yeah. So how do you how do you feel about talking about it in this well, kind of context? Well, uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of ground to cover, or I guess a lot of uh, ocean to cover in this sense. <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm I've, I've been really excited about recording this podcast. You could say that I've been waiting. My whole life to record this podcast. <laughs> um, so I'm a huge fan of Pixar movies, and actually, Finding Nemo was the first Pixar movie that I ever saw. Um, how old do I have to have to have been? I must have been like eight or younger back in in 2003. Um, wow. And I and I watched it in, 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 on a laptop at, at one of my friends' house, and. I don't know if I even understood what I you know what the movie was about <laughs> um, mm -hmm. the the first time I watched it, but I kept on going back to it over and over again and and um, I became obsessed with finding Nemo to the point where um, I actually got ban my parents banned me from watching Finding Nemo for an entire month. And it wasn't because uh, I was watching Finding Nemo too much. That was just their punishment for me because I was being bad. So, I mean, that was because I, I, I had gotten to the point where I literally watched Finding Nemo every single day. Like, it was like my routine with, that I ate like with my, with my breakfast cereal. It's like I get up, I brush my teeth, I eat my breakfast, put in Finding Nemo. That was... <laughs> I did that for a long literally time. Literally addicted. And I yeah, literally and I and I, I and to this day I could probably still recite that whole movie from beginning to end. Um so uh yeah, I have a lot we have a lot of thoughts about about this movie too. And you said you just uh you just watched it again recently. Yes. Yes, I so I also saw it when I was little, but it's been a while. I think the last time I saw it was if not when I was 12 or 13 or something, it wasn't, it was maybe five, six years ago. It was a long time ago. So I rewatched it last night uh, to get ready for recording today. And five minutes in, I was already, tears were streaming down my face. I was already sobbing. And I proceeded to cry many more times throughout the movie. Um, and what I think is interesting about Finding Nemo, just sort of from a bird's eye perspective, is that... I didn't, I wasn't 100% sure why I was crying every single time. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, it, it was sometimes just the pure product of really good, tight storytelling. And I didn't know always what exactly 
had happened. It wasn't a logical thing. It was just there's something about the artistry of it. Right. Well, I yeah, I think and this I think we we, we want to talk about this more in the podcast, but I actually you in in some in some movies like you cry the first time you watch it and then after a while it doesn't really like grab you more. Mm-hmm. Um for a movie like Finding Nemo, you cry more every single time you watch it. You cry in places yes. that you didn't cry before because you know what's going to happen next. Um, because there's so such rich storytelling there. Uh, right. So what's interesting thing about Finding Nemo is I think it stands out in the in the pantheon of Pixar films. Uh, while many later Pixar films have since outperformed Finding Nemo at the box office. Few other Pixar films have enjoyed such endearing appeal. Um, it is also the Pixar film that has the widest international audience. So what do you think makes Finding Nemo different? There are lots of things to say about this, but one thing for sure is it's a really old story. A little bit like, I mean, we talked about with Hades Town, Orpheus and Eurydice is a very old story, and that Aeneas Mitchell emphasizes the antiquity of it. Whereas, in this case, they don't make that exact claim because there isn't so much breaking the fourth wall or meta storytelling but the story itself there's there's so much internal it's it's the story of the prodigal son and it's also the story of jonah and it's also in some ways maybe the story of moby dick i don't know it's old well it's an older story well it has it, it it calls to mind a lot a whole host of epics that are related to the ocean um, and I think or the Odyssey. That, or the, about that one. I mean, yeah, and I think that it's inevitable. A story about the ocean will always um, call to mind the, every all those stories. Um, kind of like how the ocean is is itself is something that contains you know so many like objects within it, and that's mm-hmm. something that you know people poetically understand as a symbol of you know objects that are washed up on the side of the shore and. Um, all the mysteries that are uh, that that are attendant upon uh, uh, what the ocean is actually capable of doing, it's 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 terrors, it's mysteries, it's wonders, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of what makes it so u- universally and internationally appealing. Is is the ocean is something that, unlike any other kind of story, a maritime adventure, let's say, unlike any other story is something that is the least rooted in a single culture. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, every single story, every single culture has, for example, a story of a worldwide flood. That's not true of every single biblical, like we can't find public, uh, parallels of every single Old Testament story in all cultures, but we do find a widespread story of a worldwide flood. Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, there is something about the ocean where you're standing at the shore of it and it tends to suspend all differences, social, political, religious, um, because it, it simply is itself. And there's something just truly terrifying and mysterious about it. I think that's definitely true. As, I mean, if we, <laughs> if we went on a scene-by-scene discussion of Finding Nemo. I mean, we could be here forever and it would definitely be probably fruitful, but given the time that we have, I do think we should probably stop and linger for a second on the opening scene um, because that's very important. Everything from the opening sequence, the first five minutes of Nemo and the the family 
being killed by the Barracuda attack and then eventually Nemo's kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I thought, just rewatching it this time that I hadn't even noticed before, is that the opening lines of the movie are Marlin's when he's looking out at the ocean and he loves the open ocean. said you wanted an ocean view you didn't think you were gonna get the whole ocean did you huh and he loves the drop off and he specifically had to fight to get this exact home because he wanted to be near the open ocean that eventually comes to represent adventure and danger or at least moving away from safety leaving home um and then immediately this barracuda attack happens and then when most of his family is killed and five minutes into the movie, we jump, like, 12 years ahead or whatever. Suddenly, he's a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Um, this this traumatic event that happened to him changed, introduced fear into his life in a way that wasn't there before. Right. So Marlin is actually, you know, we, we introduce Marlin, uh, the clownfish, and he, we find when we first meet him, he's actually a much more adventurous person um, than he becomes throughout most of the movie. Uh, in the movie, so the actual inspiration for this movie um, was uh, the director, Andrew Stanton, took his son to the aquarium. And his son was kind of wandering off, looking at things, you know, doing things that a son, a young boy would do, and just being very explore, exploring and adventurous. And he was like constantly telling him, don't go there, don't do that, don't touch that thing. And he took a step back and started thinking of, he was getting a little introspective and he started observing himself and he's thinking, why, why am I doing this? Um, what's motivating me to, to treat my son in this, like this? And maybe I'm actually getting in his way. Um, so it was the combination of being in an aquarium that became the foundation of the story. And in the original, in the original draft of Finding Nemo, they actually structured the story different. They were going to have it so for the majority of the the body of the film, you don't actually have Marlin's backstory. So the film was going to open up with just Marlin and Nemo, and then mm. you would and then you would tell the story through a series of flashbacks, and then eventually later in the m- movie you would get the final reveal and realize this is what happened and this is why Marlin was the way he was. And maybe that's actually a useful storytelling device for other films, but it turns out that was not what was going to work for this movie. Um, because well, it makes Marlin a whole lot less sympathetic. Exactly. Sure. And so the, when it was being screened, people were walking at it and they just hated Marlin. They didn't, they didn't like, they didn't understand why he was being so overprotective. And it made, and it made Nemo like, uh, made Marlin like the bad guy. Um, so I think that this is actually an example of when it's better to to have more linear storytelling and know what happened from the beginning. Um, and so actually that leads to the second question we had for today. So if we look at like traditional Disney films like The Lion King and Bambi, it often focuses on the youth, right? And, and then the death of the parent. Um, and that becomes to a point where it's almost like a, a trope, like we always make fun of why Disney always kills off the parent. So how is the narrative thrust of Finding Nemo different from this formula? I mean, you probably have a lot more to say about this than I do. I think that 
there is, I mean, there is a death of a parent very early on. Um, yeah, but it's, but it's not imme- someone that Nemo actually knows. Right, right. It's immediately different because the death of that parent primarily affects the other parent. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that Marlon's wife dies is what changes him and sort of creates his whole character for the entire story. Um, and then Nemo doesn't have that same fear that Marlon does. He doesn't have the context. Partially because he, yeah, he didn't experience that event. Um, but probably gets his curiosity and his exploratory nature from his father. He probably gets it from Marlon, but Marlon is different now, and so that sort of creates the conflict between them. Um, and then, of course, the fact that the story doesn't really center on Nemo. Obviously, he's the title character, but it's mostly about Marlon having to change in order to find his son. Right. Which is, is both literal and metaphorical, that he has to find Nemo both Literally, he has to cross the ocean to get to him, but then also has to change as a father to really connect with his son. Um, yeah, so, so the focus is actually on the parent and instead of the child, which right. I think is interesting. Um, and also, I think that the the whole premise of the movie, the thing that sets it in motion, is so much deeper and, I think, more terrifying than what you would expect in a Disney film. I mean, like, you look at something like The Death of Mufasa, and, like, that's dark, that's diff- difficult, that's tough for a kid to go through. But also, by the same token, you can say, yes, that's difficult, but that is also something like the natural course of someone's develop, of a child's development. I mean, I mean, the death of a parent is something that while is always sad, you can look at it and say, you know, that's kind of a natural part of life. The event that sets the uh, sets this movie in motion is by no means a natural event in life. It's literally right. a kidnapping. And I think that that's what's so terrifying about it. And it definitely speaks to every parent's and child's darkest fears. Um, so you watch that scene and it's like, it's no joke. <laughs> And I think that that's probably one of the most one of the most dramatic scenes uh, in a Pixar film is that scene right. where where uh, Nemo is separated from Marlin. Well, also there's the fact that the the setting makes that more terrifying because if if these were humans, right? If we imagine the story of Finding Nemo set in the normal world, they're not fish; they don't live in the ocean. And it's just like a kidnapping. Mm-hmm. There are authorities. There's police you can go to. And the world isn't that big. You're not that small. Whereas right. they're tiny little clownfish. And the ocean is huge. And there's no way to know where in the world this boat is going. Um, and there isn't, there's not authorities to go to. There's nobody to help Marlon. So it's he's 100% on his own with miles and miles and miles and miles of ocean where he could look. So immediately the task of Marlon finding Nemo is almost 
impossible. Well, that's, I think, also really interesting because, like, one of the things that the that the Pixar artists challenged themselves with when they were first developing their, their company is that they wanted to tell a story without a villain. And I think Finding Nemo is especially true in that case. Um, yeah. And, you know, the things, you could look at, like, the dentist and you could say, like, oh, he's evil, but he's not really evil. He's kind of a buffoon. And the relationship between the fish and the humans is not really personal like it is mm -hmm. in, say, Ratatouille or something. Um, right. There, There isn't, like, a personal relationship with the, the forces that the characters are actually um, in conflict with. So what does that tell us? Um, like, what is it that actually drives the conflict of this film? And how is it that they're able to make the story function entirely without a villain? Uh, well, it sort of takes me back to, I mean, when you're in high school and they tell you that there are only a certain number of conflicts that you actually have, and one of them is man versus nature. And that one obviously is supposed to be a story with an antagonist, which is just sort of an impersonal nature, mm -hmm. but without a personal antagonist, without a villain of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, and the story almost feels like it fits into that mold. Obviously, fish are, the way we think of it, part of nature, um, but they're sort of personal characters in this story. But nature is even less impersonal in this story than it would be in some other man-versus-nature film or book. So it feels like the forces that are working against Marlin are also simultaneously the forces that are helping him. Uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but the whale, I think, is a really good example of this, where they encounter this whale, and the whale is in... is... Originally, Dory thinks that the whale is going to help them, is going to give them directions. Mm -hmm. And then the whale quickly becomes an obstacle... And then they're trapped in the whale. But then the whale ends up spitting them out in the right place. So yeah. the same forces that are the problem, such as the vastness of the ocean or um, the whale that they encounter or the sharks or whatever, end up being how they how they make it. <laughs> how Marlin finds Nemo in the end. Um, I don't know if that even answers the question, but it just makes it harder to tell where where do we find the antagonistic forces when the antagonistic forces actually end up being helpful a lot of the time yeah well so yeah that's really interesting because it, it almost seems like that there's there's an element of the events in the story which almost feel arbitrary um mm -hmm. you know the forces that actually bring bring marlin and nemo eventually back together again um i mean but they do seem to be kind of like forces of malevolence and you could kind of i mean i think you maybe you could make the argument that there is some kind of social critique going on about um you know hu uh, the way we should you know respect the oceans and and that sort of thing and and nature and all that um but i don't know if i personally see that message necessarily being evoked here um, it seems that the role that the humans are playing are kind of more like they more they're more like nature than they are like humans. They're more like forces of malevolence. So it does kind of strip away the the the, the purely social critique and saying attribute this attribute the malevolence and evil of the world solely to human folly. But it seems to be going deeper than that and saying 
well, actually, some of the things that happen in your life are actually, you know, just malevolent forces that are inherent to life itself. Right. And that's part of part of growing up. Well, that um, reminds me of in the New Testament, the I forget which gospel it is, but it's there's the, the blind man and then the Pharisees ask Jesus who sinned this man or his parents that he should mm-hmm. be born blind. And then Jesus' answer is that that's not a thing. That's not, it's not that simple. It doesn't work like that. Right. This man wasn't born blind because someone did something necessarily. Um, that the world is more complicated than that. Which is also something that we see in Moby Dick, incidentally, while we're talking about maritime tales. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That the whole question of Ahab seeing the whale as malevolent or as having bit off his leg in a, in a personal way or he needing to have a personal grudge against the whale. Whereas Starbucks says, uh, vengeance on a dumb brute mm-hmm. seems blasphemous to be enraged with a dumb thing. Um, and how dumb the whale actually is, is, you know, a question that's up for debate. Right. But that idea. Well, there's sort of that... this mysterious beauty in the whale too. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's let's not go to the whale too much uh, yet. Uh, let's let's save that for later. Let's talk about Dory. So the first time we meet Dory, for well, for the first thing we find out about her is that she has short-term memory loss. See, I, I suffer from short-term memory loss. Short-term memory loss. I don't believe this. No, it's true. I forget things almost instantly. It runs in my family. Well, I mean, at least I think it does. And then very quickly, the thing that makes her valuable to Marlin is the fact that she can read. Okay, there's a way out. There's gotta be a way out. Look, here's something. Escape. I wonder what that means. It's funny. It's spelled just like the word escape. Let's go. That she's able to read the address on the mask. What, what's going on? Why do we have a character who has those two things kind of set in tension against each other? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, Dory actually, I mean, really changes the tone of the movie and it's the first time, you know, actually we get some really good laughs. I think that in a sort of like low-grade B-movie, you would have the drama on one hand and the comedy on the other hand, and there's someone who just plays the role of comic relief, right? Who's just right. funny, so sort of goofy, so like Cars 2, you know, like it's just <laughs> Mater going around being a goofball or something. Yep. Um, but, and that appears to be what Dory is, right, from the beginning. But it's interesting because... Dory comes in and um, she appears to be an obstruction, but she keeps on playing these very interesting roles. So Marlon meets Dory and we learn two things. First is she has short-term memory loss and then second that she can read. Um, And the first time we find this is with the sharks. The second time this becomes useful, uh, the mask descends into the darkness, into the abyss. And Marlin is really upset because this is the only way that he can find Nemo, but he is not willing to go down there. And that's where Dory, right. and Dory is the one who leads them down. Well, there's not even, it's not that Marlin says, oh no, I could go down there, but I'm not going to. He just doesn't even, it doesn't even register in his mind as an option. He, the mask falls and he's like, well, that's it. It's over. Yeah, he was like, it's gone, I've lost the mask. It's my only chance of finding my son, now it's gone. He just gives up. And it's 100% an option for Dory. Dory doesn't even seem to see a difference between the 
the world above and the world below. Mm-hmm. So the Dory is kind of like, almost like she's a, she's a instructive. She's, she's guiding Marlin, but she doesn't really know that she's guiding Marlin. Uh, right. But she always gets them to where they are, where they want to be. They go down and they meet the angler fish. <laughs> so this is the first time Dory is, is reading the mask. Uh, and this is actually a really funny scene. Um, another example of where drama and comedy kind of mingle together because there's like Marlin's constantly being uh, attacked by this anglerfish and Marlin and Dory's just trying to use the light in order to read the mask. Uh, I'm sorry, but if you could just bring a little closer, I kind of need the light. But what I think is interesting about this is that this is the first time Dory actually remembers something is when she reads the mask. So what did it say? What did the mask say? P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. <gasps> what it said i usually forget things but i remembered it that time and so this is i think an interesting theme which was it ends up being something that 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 later develops into something more significant later on this ability to read is what actually triggers dory's memory is this text she's given this text it gives her direction and um and it's this address which people around the world know better than their own address, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. They go down into this abyss, right? And this is a going to come into play later on, this going down into the abyss or going down into hell. But this is the first time that happens. It's also, I think, the first time that we... The, I mean, Dory starts singing the Just Keep Swimming song uh, here for the first time as they're going down into the abyss. Um, and again, it's, it's her encountering something that ends up being basically a symbol for death. I mean, you talk about it as a descent into hell and that happens multiple times that there's sort of a descent into hell, which is mm -hmm. symbolically a descent into death and that Dory doesn't just go into hell cheerfully, but she, she doesn't. In the same way that it doesn't register for Marlin as an option, it doesn't register for her as a problem at all. That there's no difference mm -hmm. between going up or going down. That you just keep swimming. It's not even swimming down for her, which is eventually what the idea of swimming down <laughs> becomes important for both Marlin and for Nemo. But for Dory, it's just swimming. Yeah. The direction isn't important. Right. So let's kind of move, go on to like talk about the structure of the movie here. Um, the movie kind of switches back and forth between Marlin and Dory and Nemo. So let's kind of transition over to what's happening with Nemo on the other hand. Mm -hmm. So we've got this overprotective father. He's lost his son. He's been kidnapped. And now for the rest of the body of the story, father and son are separated. Um... And they actually don't really interact very much until the very end. So it's almost like two movies are happening. So what happens at, over on the other end here with Nemo? So he ends up in this fish tank um, in a dentist's office, which is... I'm not, I don't know if there's any point in the fact that it's in a dentist office, but I also think it's hilarious that all the fish in the fish tank know so much about dentistry. Yeah. <laughs> they're interested. <laughs> and that when the pelican shows up, he's like, oh, I'm late. What did I miss? And he knows about it too. So Root canal. It's a doozy. Yeah. Root canal, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yep. Yep. 
And there's like, um, well, actually, that's really interesting how that happens. I mean, so obviously these fish are just kind of sitting there and they're so bored and they have nothing else to do but just become experts in dentistry. But I think that this is something that tells you a little bit about Nemo's development. The first time that he meets these people, they kind of really do seem like the cool kids. And right. they're coming, they're talking about all this dentistry jargon, right? And then it cuts to Nemo kind of like looking at them being like, whoa, these kids, the, 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 and it's like the story of every single time you've gone to a new setting and you, you're surrounded by people who just know things more than you do and they seem to be kind of cool and developed and cultured or whatever and they, they know a lot of different references and lingo and you're just kind of like watching them. And this is, and this is, you could say, is almost like Nemo's first initiation into society, Right. right. He's, he's having like his first social experience here when he's going around and he, and he meets this this gang of fish. And he actually does have a very traumatic experience right away is he, he gets sucked up and gets stuck in the filter. Right. And that's where he meets Gil. Yes. I was going to say that um, the introduction of Gil, first of all, what a character. I was remembering yeah. watching it again. How interesting Gil is as a character. And the fact that he, that Gil doesn't have a backstory that's ever given to you. Marlon's whole backstory is given to you. Right. Gil, we only get little bits and pieces, but he also is a parallel or a foil, I guess, to the character of Marlon and also becomes sort of a father figure, maybe, that sort of stands in contrast to Marlon. So, right. Like, well, actually, we're left I, I don't know. I don't know. I might have to debate you on that point. There is Gil really a father figure? Because I know I, I think when I think of Gil, he seems to be more like a cool older brother. Hmm. I mean, they're called the Fish Gang, right? And Nemo joins the, the gang, right? Is literally initiated. Right. Gil doesn't have a special title. He's not called Mister or Master or something. He's he's Gil. Um, mm -hmm. so there's, there's a, there's less formality there. And the, his first introduction to Gil, right, is Nemo stuck in the filter. Uh, he says, can you help me, help me? Gil says, no, you get yourself in there. You can get yourself out. Nemo hasn't encountered anyone like this before in his life, you know, mm -hmm. particularly any kind of like older person, right? His only interaction is with his father. And so... An older adult figure simply saying, do it on your own. Um, that's something that is traumatizing or scary for Nemo, but he's also kind of attracted to it at the same time. So in that sense, you could say that Gil is, is kind of like a father figure. Um, but then again, I would say that he's more like an older brother in a gang. And that's exactly the way it's portrayed um, later on in the Nemo initiation scene is this group of fish is definitely portrayed like a gang and, and Nemo's kind of like joining a gang. And again, you don't want what you don't look at this, like Nemo's rebellious phase or something like that. It just seems to me like him kind of joining a group of friends and, and becoming a little bit more independent as kind of a natural course of action. But it's when in this initiation scene, Nemo has to swim through bubbles so in this sense, he's actually experiencing the same thing that Marlin has to do, but he's actually experiencing it within the, within the context of society. Marlin is having to experience it in the vast ocean. Nemo's experiencing it through, through ritual, and the ritual is swim through this lava pit or this 
so-called lava pit. I mean, it's a, it's a lava, it's a fake lava mountain in the aquarium that shoots bubbles. Right. And then they have their, their big chant going on. Nemo gets through, he's initiated, and he's given a new name. From this moment on, you will now be known as Sharkbait. Sharkbait! <laughs> and this is where we discover that the reason why Gil wanted him to get out of the filter on his own, the reason why is because he wanted to know whether Nemo would be able to, was small enough to get himself out of the filter so that Gil could enact one of his escape plans to get out of the tank and into the ocean. And this is where we realize that even though Gil is somewhat different from Marlin and that he gives Nemo more freedom, you see him putting this immense amount of pressure on Nemo to, to actually do something that's beyond maybe what he naturally would be able to do. Um, and part of it is kind of selfish. He just, Gil just wants to escape, and he sees Nemo as a means to escape. Um, and so that actually ends up not going so well for Nemo. Um, right? Right. Well, that's, that's where I'd argue, actually, that Gil is, at least in the context of the story, uh, a father foil for Marlin. Because, so, so the, the tank is basically the safe space that Marlin has always wanted for Nemo. But besides the threat of Darla. The tank itself is a little tiny safe space that's much smaller than the big ocean. It's not the drop-off, it's not the view that Marlin used to love. Um, and then Marlin wants to protect Nemo, maybe overprotect Nemo, by keeping him in a safe space like that. Like a small space. Whereas all that Gil wants mm -hmm. is to leave that safe space and he wants to get Nemo out of that safe space too. Um, so they're exact opposites of each other in that way, in the sense that Marlin wants Nemo to be in a safe space, and then Gil wants Nemo to leave the safe space. But they both want that for selfish reasons, that right. Marlin has personal reasons for needing Nemo to be safe, and Gil has personal reasons for wanting to leave the tank. Um, right. Which is what causes both of them to fail in their duty to Nemo in some way is that they're internally focused rather than focused on actual love for Nemo. So actually I have a quote for this. So when when the the escape plan for Gil to get out goes awry, Gil feels this immense amount of guilt. And so Nemo comes up and he speaks to him and he says, I'm sorry I couldn't stop the filter. Gil replies, no, I'm the one who should be sorry. I was so willing to get out, so willing to taste that ocean. I was willing to put you in harm's way to get there. Nothing should be worth that. I'm sorry I couldn't get you back to your father, kid. And I think that this is a moment in which Gil actually gives up his role as the father figure. Or maybe at least as Nemo realizes, mm -hmm. maybe realizes something that, you know, actually, you know, Gil's going to let me down too. Yeah. So maybe he looked up to Gil before, but now he's realizing... You know, well, it's that moment where you realize, you know, adults are, are vulnerable and flawed and, and selfish, too. And maybe they don't really know what they're doing any more than I do. Right. You know, so, I mean, going back to the gang idea, it kind of makes sense. You see this happen all the time. If, it, you know, a kid doesn't have a very strong father figure in their life, that they will 
gravitate towards a character maybe more like Gil, who, while while maybe not a most a, a good or protective father, at least gives them some freedom. But the freedom is motivated by something that's fundamentally selfish. So, so that becomes that becomes a problem and is not ultimately able to 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 replace that 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 father figure in their lives. Right. Um, but also, I you mentioned Darla too, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because it's like even in this that you point. It's interesting that you pointed this out because even in this ideal tank space, they're not safe. Right. Right. And I think that's part of the point. That's part of what Marlin has to learn. That's part of what Nemo has to learn. You can you can have your little anemone. You can have your perfect structured, uh, you know, safe space with walls and walls and walls around it, but you have to escape, mm-hmm. right? You're, it, it's absolutely necessary for you to escape. And you see that, like, there's so many different forces at play here that keeps this movie constantly, you're constantly on your toes. Actually, so the director, Andrew Stanton, was studying screenwriting, and when he was studying it, he came across this quote from the British playwright William Archer, who said, drama is anticipation mingled with uncertainty, right? Right. So did you, do you think you found that true, that this quote was kind of, like, this principle was incorporated into Finding Nemo? Oh, yes, 100%. Um, I mean, partially it's a Pixar movie, which means that you know, you know that Marlin's going to find Nemo. That's not the question that you're asking the entire time. That's something that you are Mm -hmm. anticipating, that you are certain about. Mm -hmm. Um, how that's going to happen is the uncertainty. (laughs) Um, the entire time the fact that there's a vast ocean and that they're the only clue to get there is this mask that some fish miraculously can read well actually now that we've brought up dory um jumping back for a second to marlin and dory and away from the fish tank back with marlin and dory sort of the next thing that happens with them is the when marlin is frustrated with dory that he doesn't want her around because she's a liability because she makes things more difficult um and he tries to leave her and then that leads into the scene where they're going through the trench or he she wants to go through the trench because she knows that there's something dangerous if they go over but because of her disability she can't remember why and marlin doesn't believe her and then that leads to this whole the trouble with the jellyfish um just to talk about Dory for a second. I was struck by how much Dory is like Shakespeare's wise fool. So in Shakespeare plays, um, the fool often has a... All right, the fool as a character is basically the clown of the play, the, the comic relief character, often a literal court jester who works for the noble characters who are the actual protagonists of the play. Um, and the fool character often has a sort of silly or comical facade but then also ends up making some of the wisest comments in the play. Um, That's especially true in a play like King Lear or As You Like It or those kinds of plays. Um, And As You Like It, the fool, whose name is Touchstone, says, The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. And that's sort of what contributes to this idea of Shakespeare's fools as being wise fools, that they're simple and comical, but that that simplicity and even their comedic nature is what leads them to be wise. Um, 
there's that idea that in order to be really wise, you have to be simple, like Dory is. Um, so, I mean, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians one twenty, which says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Um, and Marlin's fear is very practical, and it's, in some sense, worldly wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. But then Dory's simplicity, uh, her foolishness, so to speak, ends up making Marlin's worldly wisdom or his practicality foolish. Um, in the same way that Shakespeare's wise fools do the same thing to the noble protagonists in a lot of their plays. Right. And he, there's actually a point when he tries to get rid of Dory. And it's kind of funny when he tries to do it. He's like, there's a whole group of fish. They're, they're called <laughs> delay fish. Uh, you know? And actually, now that you were talking about this, this kind of made me think of uh, Matthew 11, verse 25, which one of my favorite verses of the Bible, the words of Jesus himself, who said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So Jesus constantly emphasizes the wisdom of children and the wisdom of infants and says we even need to be children in order to enter the kingdom of God. And that's sort of difficult for us to wrestle with because, you know, um, there is that reality of, well, then you have to ask the question, what exactly do you mean by becoming infants or, or becoming children? Um, can we actually be like Dory and, and just kind of be carefree through life? Or do we need to actually incorporate Marlin? Because Marlin is really the character we identify with. I mean, he's the person who is cognizant of the actual reality around him, of, of the dangers and the perils. And that's part of something that, that Nemo doesn't see. And the fact that Nemo doesn't see it is what got him into trouble in the first place. So there's something about, like, Dory, who's getting in the way, but at the same time, you know, she has something to tell us, and for some reason, she keeps on getting something right. Um, but then at the same time, uh, can we actually be like Dory? It's maybe saying something actually about mental disability or genetic disorders, things like that. Um, for example... My little brother, Ransom, who you also know, has Down syndrome and is one of the greatest humans, probably the greatest human who has ever lived. Um, and he's so wise and is one of the wisest people probably that I know. And he has lots of superpowers and abilities and ways of handling emotional situations that I don't have and I could never have. And he has those because he has Down syndrome. He has those because of a disability um but that we can't emulate ransom we can't become like ransom um because the way that he mm -hmm. reaches those abilities or that that um emotional intelligence or his wisdom is just not something that's true for us and i think that's a weird tension that's going on with dory is that her her problem really is a disability and it's not something that we should wish to have and yet it's what makes her valuable to Marlin, and it's ultimately the reason that Marlin is able to find Nemo at all. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit when they encounter the turtles. So they get into the East Australian Current, and they're 
they meet Crush the turtle, who's 150 years old, and his son, and all these little baby turtles. Um, first of all, makes me very happy because turtles are objectively the best animal, and I love turtles. So any scene that involves turtles yeah. is, is fantastic. But besides that, um, there's this interesting little moment of Marlin maybe learning something about fatherhood or how to be a good father when he watches the squirt, the little turtle, uh, Crush's son, leave the current. Um, and Marlin's immediate reaction is to freak out. Probably with good reason, because he's lost a lot of family members in his life. But Crush, the father, is so unconcerned about it and just says, hey, just watch, watch what he does. And in kind of the safety of being watched by his father, Squirt makes it back into the current and is really excited about it. And it turns out to be a good experience for him. And he learns something about how to swim and how to navigate this travel experience that they're all going through. Um, Right. So is Crush the ideal father? Is Crush the ideal father? He might be. I I mean, in the context of this movie, I think he definitely teaches Marlon the most important lesson about being a father of any other character. Well, he's actually the only other character who actually is a father. Like, Gil is not. He's a gang leader. That's true. That's the difference. Yeah, so so we have this scene, actually, with the turtles, which we actually have to pause and investigate a little bit more, because this is a really important scene, because this is the part where Marlin uh, begins, first tells the story of everything that's happened up to this point. Right. Uh, to a group of children, right? So the the camera pans out, and you see Marlin as the storyteller, telling the story of everything that happened to a group of children, and then the camera... Um, moves and we see this beautiful montage scene of this story being passed on and passed on and passed on and it's this beautiful interim moment in the movie where you pause and reflect on everything that's happened it happens about halfway Mm -hmm. through the film all of a sudden this tension is is relaxed for a moment and the last the last scene of that montage is, you know, I think there's seagulls that are flying into the sunset or something. And the last, the last uh, quote is, you know, that's one dedicated father, if you ask me. Um, and that's, I think, you know, definitely one of the most beautiful moments in the movie because you realize how far Marlin has come up to this point. And Marlin, at this point now becomes not just this kind of like cowardly, worrisome, overprotective father, but once he embodies the story and becomes a narrator, then, and the narrator of the story, he becomes a hero. And that heroic narrative is what eventually comes to Nemo. Well, in that it's his his crafting of a meta-narrative that sort of makes sense of all the isolated incidents that have happened to him gives that story meaning. And that meaning is then embodied when it's given to Nemo, where it actually does something. (laughs) It affects the story. Um, But just the act of telling it makes it make sense. Um, Right. It's the act of telling the story, which then, you know, it it becomes like a myth. And I think that's what's so important about a myth, right? Is that a myth makes sense of the suffering. 
and then you are able to connect the themes, the ideas, the 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 wise fool, the 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 forces of malevolence, the the text which gives us the proper orientation in the world. All of these things come to string together and become this epic story, and you realize you're a part of it. You're riding right. the current of this story, literally, metaphorically. Um, and that's actually one of uh, an emotional high point of the movie is when it comes. Uh, when it comes to Nemo, um, and we see see Marlin as a hero, and for the first time, Nemo sees Marlin, his father, differently. Well, because there's the Nigel shows up and starts telling him the story, and Nemo at first is hopeful, and then hears, oh, he fought sharks, and he says, oh, that can't be him. <laughs> um, and then it's only when... Nigel actually is able to say Marlin's name that Nemo goes, oh, that really is him. Um, which, which leads him to realize something yeah. then about his father that he, he didn't know before. See, kid, after you were taken by David Dan over there, your dad followed the boat you were on like a maniac. Really? He's swimming, he's swimming, he's giving it all he's got. And three gigantic sharks capture him and he blows him up. And it dies, starts to meet me, it's chased by a monster with huge teeth. Uh, yeah, so actually going back to this, this is, I think, definitely a point that, that makes you cry, for sure. And you were going back, and, and you were, earlier you were saying, like, it's hard to say why exactly this moment makes you cry, um, or several moments right. in the movie. And I think that one of the reasons why is, is informed by a lot of the discussions of that search for a father figure that Nemo has been going through at this point. Um, and it's kind of all coming together at this moment um, because Nemo has been let down both by his actual father and by his relationship with Gil at right. the same time at this moment. And, and actually there was a conversation that happens right before this where Nemo is actually really at his low point. He's looking outside the harbor, sadly, imprisoned, Gil comes up and talks to him and says, you know, you miss your dad, don't you? And he says, yes. And he says, well, you're lucky that you have someone out there who's looking for you. And Nemo says, he's not looking for me. He's scared of the ocean. And it's just crushing, right, right to hear him say that because he really believes that his dad doesn't love him. And so that's the moment of change for Nemo, and you see it on his face when Nigel is telling the story. Oh, actually, my dad is really cool. My dad is someone that I can look up to. And not only is he someone that I can look up to, but he's doing it all for me. After we have that whole scene, so we have the whole, the telling the story scene, it gets back to Nemo, um, and then Marlon and Dory sort of have rid ridden the current, made it to the point where they should be able to just swim their way to Sydney and then get lost. And there's the whole scene where they encounter the whale, Dory tries to talk to the whale to get directions, uh, the whale ends up swallowing them instead. Um, so obviously, immediately, Jonah imagery, where they spend time in the belly of a whale, and here, as it is in Jonah, it's... Uh, it's death imagery. They're dying symbolically. Yeah. 
um, in the context of the story. And you have the really incredible scene of the, the whale draining and something's going to happen. They're either going to die or something else, but it looks like they're going to die. Um, and Dory says, as they're hanging on to the whale to keep from falling, and Dory says, of the whale, he says it's time to let go. Everything is going to be all right. And Marlon says, how do you know? How do you know something bad isn't going to happen? And Dory pauses for a second and then says, I don't. And Marlon yeah. lets go and trusts Dory. And they get, just like Jonah was, they're spat out. Um, and they're exactly where they need right. to be. And that's, that's such a well-written screenplay in every sense of every sense of the word and and yeah so this is a moment and we talked about like this is the second time marlin has unwillingly been thrust to descend into hell and he finds that the only way that he's going to go out is by going down right, right? so he's got to he's got to swim down into the dark abyss where the angler fish is where danger is in order to retrieve the mask um He's got to swim, he's got to go, he's got to let go, fall back into literally the throat of the Leviathan, the throat of the whale, in order to escape from it. The only time, and you mentioned this earlier, the only time when he doesn't do this is the trench, right? We go back to the trench, and he says, you know, are you even looking at this thing? It's got death written all over it which is more telling besides being just kind of humorous and hyperbolic. It actually is an idea, a symbol of death and it's a symbol of death, which Marlin is unwilling to actually face. It's that facing of death of going down into the abyss of dying to oneself that actually enables Marlin to get out. And when Marlin tries to avoid that, he gets mm -hmm. in trouble as he did with the jellyfish. But this time, this time he actually gets out. And at that point he realizes that Dory was right. right. And that's where actually where the pacing of the movie really picks up. And you can see that as a trope in a movie is that that's the real turning point, right? Um, Marlon, I mean, Marlon still has a lot to learn. And you can think of that as our own Christian story is that moment of repentance, right? Where we've reached the bottom. We really, you know, we realize we can't do it on our own. And we actually make that find that true act of courage, right? And and we turn around, and you see the pacing pick up, things getting more exciting. The, even musically, things start moving a little bit faster. Um, but Marlin still has a lot mm -hmm. to learn. Well, that brings us to then the moment where Marlin actually makes it. He gets to the to the dentist's office and. There's a really heartbreaking sees across the room. Nemo makes it there, but then, because of sort of a misunderstanding, believes that Nemo is dead because Nemo is pretending to be dead in the in the bag. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so Marlin sort of submitted to death in order to be made alive, in order to to stay alive, mm -hmm. and then right. finds that he thinks that Nemo is dead. Um, and then because he thinks that Nemo is dead, he sort of despairs and gives up on everything, basically, and then leaves Dory behind. 
Right, so this kind of marks the third point in which they descend into hell or the abyss. And I think what supports that is actually aesthetically, you look at the setting that they're in, right? And it's like this very murky, nothing like, it's a space that kind of suggests mm -hmm. nothingness. And you see that in every single circumstance in which he descends into some form of death. So the anglerfish, they're literally in total blackness for like 30 seconds of the movie. Um, and the whale, they're in, they're in this black, dark abyss. And then right here, when they realize Nemo is dead, even though it's a little bit more abstract um, and not maybe a literal pit, the, the setting does look like a pit. I mean, it's, it's vague, uh, no, no man's land that Marlin is in. At least the environment reflects his state of mind. And yeah, like you said, this is, um, this is, this is Marlin's ultimate despair because he thinks Nemo is dead. And even though he's not literally dead, we can take this to mean that he is actually dead um, from the point of view of Marlin and from the point of view of the story emotionally. Because we've kind of play, been playing fast and loose with the term death, but when we're talking about stories, uh, the role of death is actually something more than a literal death. Um, and, you know, when you're watching a movie and you're worried, oh, you know, is this character going to live live or die you're you're looking at it on the most superficial level right that's not really the deepest way you can engage with the story is whether the character is going to live or die um, because whether the character actually lives or dies doesn't really have anything to do with the actual forces of death and resurrection that are at play um, symbolically and metaphorically which actually you know, shape and, and drive our emotional engagement with the story. So yeah, Nemo appears to be dead, but for all intents and purposes, he's, mm -hmm. he's dead, right? And then we have just a really gut-wrenching speech from yeah. Dory. Oh, Dory. Right. Well, wait, where are you going? It's over, Dory. We were too late. Nemo's gone, and I'm going home now. Please don't go away. Please. No one's ever stuck with me for so long before. And if you leave, if you leave, I just, I remember things better with you. I do. Look, P. Sherman, 42, 42. I remember it. I do. It's there. I, I know it is because when I look at you, I can feel it. And, and I, I look at you and I, I'm home. I don't want that to go away. I don't want to forget. I'm sorry, Dory, but I do. So this is where we get the idea of forgetfulness really comes to a point. Let's talk about this idea of forgetfulness because on the one hand, forgetfulness up to this point has been praised as a good thing, at least from the writer's point of view, you know, something about being forgetful for Dory is actually good, right? It actually enables her and empowers her to uh, get to where she wants to go. But this seems to be a different kind of forgetfulness from Marlon. What's the difference about this forgetfulness that's different from Dory's forgetfulness? Well, I think it, it goes back to when he was telling the story, right? When he 
had to connect together all these memories that he has of crossing the ocean in order to make it one connected, meaningful story. Um, that all of those events were harrowing as they happened, and that they were even tragic in cases, um, but that it's the remembering of them and the putting them together that makes them meaningful, and it makes his life meaningful. And so Dory here is, I think, acknowledging that fact that remembering Marlin means remembering what they've been through, or having something that connects her life together, and that memory is what makes her life right. meaningful. It's a, right, it's the story, the story that connects all the events yes. together. Yes, and that Marlin saying, I want to forget, isn't a weird, I mean, this is dark for a Pixar film, but it's almost him saying, acknowledging a desire for death, because to live would be to acknowledge that this story even if Nemo really is dead, is part of his life. <laughs> it's part of him. That the memories are something that he has a mm -hmm. duty to bear now. And so wanting yeah. to get rid of the memories or not wanting to remember is not wanting to live. Yeah, and I think actually if you, you know, you consult or talk with someone who is struggling with, say, suicide, and that's exactly their state of mind. It's, it's motivated fundamentally by a desire to forget and, you know, a hope that, well, if I just end it all, maybe mm -hmm. I will forget and I'll be relieved there's the whole, of that. There's the G.K. Chesterton quote. I don't remember the exact phrasing off the top of my head, but it's the that a man who murders someone wants to kill one person, but then a man who commits suicide or wants to commit suicide wants to destroy the entire world in relation to himself. Which is sort of what Marlin's doing here. Um, and he, of course, it turns out that he doesn't have a reason to do it. But for a movie mm -hmm. that, in, in a, maybe in the deepest sense, is about death or about responding to death, um, this is, I think, the, his worst moment of responding to death. Right. But things do turn around. Um, in this moment. So this is actually another great example of dramatic irony here because Nemo actually does escape. So so when Nemo escapes, this concludes Gil's character arc because Gil sacrifices himself, in this sense it redeems himself, by flipping Nemo in a kind of ninja fish move and making him go down the drain to send him back to the ocean instead of actually saving himself. So Nemo comes back he meets up with Dory, and, and and I think this is just the greatest the greatest plot twist is that Dory has no idea yep. that it's Nemo. Well, of course that makes sense because it's like she had no idea what he was going to look like. Also, well, that she's a connecting point in the story and that she doesn't realize that, and that's partially Marlin's fault for not bearing the burden of everything that's happened to him. Um, Right, right, he's given and up. And also the fact that I think it's so interesting that she, it's a whole joke throughout the whole movie that she can't remember Nemo's name. And every time she says, oh, we're looking for his son Fabio, or whatever she says, every single time. Or Elmo. And she doesn't remember yeah. his name. And then hears his name and goes, oh, and it kind of jogs the memory, but then she, she forgets again. And when she has the moment of seeing the word Sydney, and it triggers all of her memories, that's the first time that she remembers his name. Even when she remembered that there was a mm -hmm. son, that Marlon did have a son, 
or that she knew Marlon at all, she didn't remember his name. But she remembers it now for the first time upon seeing the word Sydney. So, shy Sydney. P. Sherman 42, all of you that this goes back to to reading a text so if we were to kind of like map on like the christian story onto this um i think maybe some listeners might think of this as a bit bit of a stretch but i think that the parallels are there and that is you know there's this emphasis on remembering things not just remembering things but remembering what's mm -hmm. important in the stories of the old testament and later in the new testament um, the forgetfulness of Israel, right. right? And how are, what, how is the story of what's important of God's redemptive grace and power recalled to mind? It is by the books, by the text. Um, and it's by the constant reading of the text. You meditate on it day and night, as I think, I think that's in the Psalms, you know. Meditate on the scriptures day and night. You're actually supposed to memorize it. That's what we're catechized to do as believers, is to commit these verses to memory. So it's this reading of the text, which is actually what enables Dory to string the whole story together. And that's why the whole movie just plays in her mind as a flashback at that moment when she reads the word Sydney. And then the myth emerges by reading that text. Mm -hmm. um, the time that she can't remember it is when she was trying to actually just when it wasn't written down. And that was the instruction of the fish when they said, we go to this trench, you swim through it, not over it. She can't remember it at the point when it's absolutely crucial for her to remember it. But that's not actually the time when she's remembering an address right. there that gives her the proper direction. It's just an instruction, a prohibition. She doesn't understand what the reason for the prohibition is. She's just asked to remember it. And that's when she can't because she can't understand it in the context of a story. It's not written down and it's not oriented towards her goal, which is Sydney. Mm -hmm. And that's when she says, oh, you know, something tells me we should. And I sort of feel like we should, but, but I don't know. Right. Right. And I think that's what happens with our, with our consciences when we're trying to guide ourselves without that kind of orientation, you know, without, without Christ that's actually directing our, our steps and, and giving us a reason behind the law right a purpose behind mm -hmm. the law it's very difficult for us to remember it because we can't actually put that in the context of what all of this is for um and that's where you get like a bureaucracy right a state that is just full of arbitrary rules it's not only difficult for people to follow it because it seems arbitrary but it's also difficult for them to remember it you know and i know this as a teacher and i'm mm -hmm. sure you do too is that you have to actually make the rules part of a story or you're not going to be able it, the rules don't make any right. sense well i mean i think that takes us to sort of maybe one of the biggest broad questions of the whole story which is just what is it that gives meaning to suffering and then that's connected to the the sort of the climactic scene when they're all finally reunited but then the all the school of fish is caught in the net and they have to swim down in order to break the net and free all the fish. Um, because I was, I was actually thinking when I was rewatching it, the phrase swim down sounded so familiar to me and I was trying to remember where it was from. And I just now remembered uh, it's from 
Well, I mean, obviously it's not originally from this, but what I was remembering was the line in Hamilton in, um, it's quiet uptown after, uh, Hamilton's son is dead. Angelica Schuyler mm-hmm. at the beginning of the song says, um, there are moments that the words don't reach. There's suffering too terrible to name. So she's talking about suffering. And then she says, the moments when you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. So the, the image there hmm. is of being, of, of drowning in suffering or drowning in, in a body of water and going up, swimming up would be breaking the surface and returning to the, the, the world of the living and swimming down is swimming mm-hmm. down deeper into death or into suffering. Um, and I think it's the right. same image here that the whole idea of swimming down yeah, is the idea of accepting or of leading into leaning into suffering because that suffering is meaningful in the context of everything I mean, that's happened. I mean, it's baptism. That's right. what it is. And no, no coincidence that, you know, the bapti- baptism um, is the ritual of baptism is symbolized by mm-hmm. water, right? Um, water is supposed to be symbol- symbolic of death there. Um, so you could say that this is actually, this is Nemo's baptism in some sense. Um, this moment where he has to, well, first they're reunited, um, and then in a traumatic turn of events, they, they, Marlin has just got Nemo back and realized he's about to lose him again, and he's saying, I'm not going to lose you again which is totally understandable, but then he decides he's going to let him go, which shows how much he's changed at this mm-hmm. point. He's letting Nemo and his own experiences actually shape his decisions. Um, and Nemo saves not only himself, but all the other fish in the net by telling him, applying what he learned about swimming down and how that, that ends up rescuing them. And I also want to point out a little bit of a scene right here, a uh, moment in the scene when Marlin lets Nemo go. Uh, they, he, he, Nemo sticks out his, his lucky fin. We haven't talked about the lucky fin yet, but let's talk about it a little bit because we've talked about kind of the, the arbitrary forces of nature and malevolence and everything, but there also seems to be this force of goodness which is also equally um, inaccessible to us. It doesn't seem personal. Um, and it, that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the movie uh, when, when Coral saves, sacrifices herself to save her kids and all are killed except one, leaving a mark on the egg, uh, a blemish on the egg, which eventually develops into a physical, uh, what's the word? Mm-hmm. Deformity, um, which they call their lucky fin, um, which I think is really interesting and maybe deeper than it, than it appears like everything in this movie. I mean, it's the ocean we're talking about. So it's deep stuff. Um, but, but, he, but it's called a lucky fin and it, the story behind it is the idea that it was, it was luck. He was spared, right? And so it does somehow seem mm-hmm. like luck. And maybe we need to talk about luck because there's good luck and bad luck. 
Um, and that almost sometimes seems true of life. Sometimes it just feels like good things happen to you. And then sometimes it just feels like bad things happen to you, right? So what is this phenomenon of luck? Is it is it a real thing? Uh, in the context of the story, I don't know that there's a distinction that's really made. Um, a lot of times, in a strange way, the, the actual force of, of luck or of providence or grace or whatever you want to call it in the story is personal in the sense that it's a, it's a character that does it. For example, the whale who, it's questionable whether the whale is just doing whale things and Dory just accidentally makes up an interpretation or whether Dory is actually understanding the whale and that the whale is actually taking them to Sydney. Yeah. Um, because Dory communicates kind of, at least to us, that they want to go to Sydney, and she does ask for directions, and so maybe the whale hears her. But maybe the whale doesn't. Maybe the whale's just an animal and is doing what he's doing, and they interpret it in this way. Um, same thing, actually, with the, the lucky fin. So I was just thinking, as you were talking about the lucky fin, that Nigel, when he sees Marlin and goes, oh, that's the clownfish from the story, and goes down and there's mm -hmm. all the, the seagulls around who are going to eat Marlin, and he says... I can take you to your son, hop inside my mouth if you want to live. And Marlin doesn't believe him and says, oh yeah, hop in your mouth, ha ha ha, like you're going to eat me. And then Nigel says, no, I know your son. He's, I forget, he says some characterizations that are not specific to Nemo, but then he says he's got a gimpy fin on one side. And that's, that's yeah. what lets Marlin know that it really is Nemo. So in that sense, that's also saving Marlin's life and taking him to Nemo. Um, so it's not just the mark mm -hmm. of the fact that Nemo survived, it's a thing that brings Marlin back to Nemo. So it's lucky in more ways than one. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that the movie specifies, <laughs> is that, is this luck? Is this more personal than that? Is it Providence? Is it, what is it? But there's the very clear theme mm -hmm. that suffering or that acts of tragedy are, can lead to goodness, can lead to a, a happy ending <laughs> rather than merely a tragic ending. Yeah, I think that, you know, Christians talk about the idea of grace. And I think that when you look at it from a secular perspective, you might call that luck. Um, so I don't personally believe in luck, but I think I kind of understand why people would believe in luck because when I actually try to describe what grace is, I think from the outset, maybe from the outside, it does bear similarity in appearance to the phenomenon of luck in the sense that you don't know where it comes from, you don't know why it happens, and it happens to people who don't deserve mm -hmm. it. Um, and so I think that that um, using the word luck has kind of like maybe an ironic meaning to it that could also, you know, flip side and mean grace. And it has to do with your belief system. I mean, you can look at the world and you can say, yeah, this is all a coincidence. But then you have to say, OK, if it's a coincidence, it's one crazy coincidence. And, you know, you can look back at that. And so, you know, an atheist atheistic way of looking at something um you could 
you can look back on your life and you can say you didn't see God in it, or you could see God in it. And I think this is something C.S. Lewis said, is that someone who doesn't believe in miracles will never see him, and someone who believes in miracles will see them all the time. And again, you know, you could look at that from the atheistic point of view and saying, well, you know, all that's saying is, like, if you don't, if you believe in miracles, you will drum up evidence to, in support of right. it. Um, but you could also flip that on its head and look at it from the opposite point of view and saying, if you don't believe in evidence, then you'll suppress all evidence in support of it. So it's not fundamentally, you know, a rational thing that will make the final decision of whether this is luck or this is grace. And I think that the movie doesn't state that either. It, it does kind of leave it up to you. Um, there's also, there's also an interesting, uh, interesting part of this story, which, which makes it, I think, deeply personal. And I think it tells you about, um, where the director is coming from. The storytellers are coming for the mm -hmm. Pixarians are coming from in this story. So, um, but the director, Andrew Stanton, he told the story, and this is in a TED talk called Clues to a Great Story, something we should actually link. I think it's a, a pretty good um, summary of, of Stanton's philosophy, but he tells the story of um, the time when when he was a young boy, he found pinpoint scars on his heel. And he went up to his dad and he asked what it was. And he says, you actually have the same scars on your head, but you can't see it because of your hair. And the reason why these scars exist is because you were prematurely born. And you were not fully baked. <laughs> and the doctor said that you were not going to make it. Um, but his parents believed that they would make he would make it. And after many blood transfusions later, he survived. Ah! And his survival, at least from you know, his parents' perspective made him special. Andrew Stanton had a lucky fan. And he had a lucky fin. And he said in his, uh, in his talk, and I quote, I don't know if I really believe that I'm special. I don't know if my parents really believed that. But I didn't want to prove them wrong. Whatever I ended up being good at, I would strive to be worthy of the second chance I was given. That's so good. I've never heard that before. So, yeah, there's that. He he himself does not actually come to the point of, of calling it providence. And he himself has his own doubts. I don't know if that really means anything. Um, but it's something that he, he can't get away from. And it definitely he works that into into the story. We should wrap up here. The last the last little thought that I had is sort of linking back to one of the first things we were talking about, which is the idea that Marlin, um, he is fearless in the beginning. And then it's this tragic event that happens to him that causes him to fear. And ultimately it's, it's his love for his dead family and his love for Nemo that introduces fear into his life that he doesn't want to lose Nemo. But then that this fish who's, maybe cowardly who is scared of the ocean crosses the entire ocean in order to find his son um which reminds me of first john where it says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love so that 
Marlin's imperfect love introduces fear into his life, but that his perfected love is what casts out fear. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the most obvious biblical parallels of this story is, is the story of the prodigal son. Um, because, I mean, this is Marlon searching out and recovering his wayward son. Um, and isn't, doesn't Dory actually say that yeah, at one says, point? When she finds Nemo, and she, she remembers, and she says, You were dead! I saw you! Uh, which is yeah. like in Luke. When the, right. in the story of the prodigal son, when <laughs> yeah, the comic exactly. says, For my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Right. So there's that obvious parallel there, but also you got to point out too that that Marlin is not like the father in the parable of the prodigal son in the sense that he's flawed, um, whereas the father was his the perfect our perfect heavenly father. But Marlin um, is not the perfect dad, and a lot in a lot of ways it was his flaws that caused his son to rebel and leave him in the first place. Um, but what makes it like the prodigal son, what makes the story ultimately redemptive, what makes Marlon ultimately the father who is like Christ, and I think that it comes back to his love. It's his love which ultimately redeems him. Um, it's his love for his son which causes him to conquer all of his flaws, all of his fears, all of his cowardice, um, and transforms the whole thrust of the story and it ends up turning everything around um so i think that that's a perfect application of the verse because you know finally you know in our horrible sinful state we're never going to be good parents we're never going to be uh uh good good people but if we can actually love maybe we can turn all of this around what a good thought what a good movie. Such a good movie. Do you have yeah. any... Well, I guess yeah, do you have that's... any final thoughts or... No, I think that's probably a good note to end on. I agree. I think so. We we went way over time, so... It's good. We'll edit it down probably. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, again, I'm Sophie Klomperens. I'm Raymond Docapel. See you next time. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. That's unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. And let us know what piece on the Stoa Mars Hill list you would like to hear discussed next. Until next time, friends. Just keep swimming. There are no new words under the sun.